coming to you from a cozy little condo high atop old Fort Ward, Atlanta. Welcome, Welcome to The Ron Show on America One Radio. Here's your host, Ron Roberts. All right, and happy Tuesday to you. I want to get right to the big story locally. Georgia Attorney General Chris Carr held a press conference earlier today after 61 indictments were handed out against, again, more than five dozen Cop City activists. The Attorney General bringing RICO indictments against all 61. Here is how that press conference sounded when it rolled out. All right, good afternoon, everybody. As I've said for months, the state of Georgia would not tolerate the repeated acts of violence and destruction that have occurred in an attempt to stop the construction of the Atlanta Public Safety Training Center, a state-of-the-art facility for firefighters, EMTs, and law enforcement. I vowed as Attorney General to hold accountable those responsible for those actions. Today, I am pleased to announce the latest development in our vigorous pursuit of the suspects. Following an investigation conducted by the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, the Atlanta Police Department, the Georgia Department of Public Safety, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, and other law enforcement partners. Our office took this case to a Fulton County Grand Jury on August 29th. Based on the evidence we presented, the Grand Jury has returned an indictment charging 61 people with violation of the Georgia Racketeer Influence and Corrupt Organizations Act. Some are also charged with domestic terrorism, attempted arson in the first degree, and money laundering. As alleged in the indictment, the defendants are members of Defend the Atlanta Forest, an anarchist, anti-police, and anti-business extremist organization. We contend these 61 defendants together have conspired to prevent the construction of the Atlanta Public Safety Training Center by conducting, coordinating, and organizing acts of violence, intimidation, and property destruction. Among the items we obtained during our investigation were writings from an anarchist supporter who confirms the strategy that engaging in violence will bring attention to the group's political goals. As alleged in the indictment, the defendants used social media and other open source outlets such as Scenes Blog to advocate, boast, and take credit for their destruction. The indictment lists 225 incidents in which we allege that the defendants worked together to prevent the construction of the Atlanta Public Safety Training Center. These alleged incidents include, but are not limited to, the following. On July 5th, 2020, members of the group attacked the Georgia Department of Public Safety Headquarters by throwing rocks and hurling a Molotov cocktail through the window resulting in the injury of two employees in the building catching fire. On May 17, 2022, defendants hurled Molotov cocktails and glass bottles at police officers at the training center site. On December 13, 2022, defendants threw fireworks at firefighters and EMTs, damaged an APD vehicle, and cut the safety rope of an arborist working in one of the trees on the site. On multiple occasions, members of the group torched and caused other damage to buildings and construction equipment, including excavators and bulldozers owned by contractors associated with the project. 
and then claimed responsibility for the destruction. Members of the group used the scenes blog to call for a night of rage to occur on January 21st, 2023, during which defendants committed arson and property damage and attempt to break into 191 Peach Street, where the offices of the Atlanta Police Foundation and other businesses are located. On March 5th, 2023, a member of the group punched a police officer and an organized mob attacked other law enforcement who were guarding the training center site. And the crowd proceeded to set construction vehicles on fire. On July 3rd, 2022, at least one member of the group vandalized historic Ebenezer Baptist Church. On multiple occasions, members of the group harassed and intimidated law enforcement, including traveling to the home of a state trooper. And on multiple occasions, members of the group harassed and intimidated contractors and construction workers for their roles in the project, including trespassing on and destroying their property in Georgia, Florida, New York, Oregon, Michigan, and Minnesota. As the indictment asserts, members of Defend the Atlanta Forest subscribe to a philosophy of anarchy. They hold a core belief that society should abolish police, government, and private business. And as further alleged, they're willing to bring about such changes, quote, by any means necessary, end quote, including violence. In order to advance their agenda, we contend that this group has actively recruited and trained others from Georgia around the country and across the globe to participate in this criminal enterprise. The overwhelming majority of those we have indicted are in fact from other states and one is from another country. We assert that members of Defend the Atlanta Forest guided by their extreme worldview united in opposition to the construction of the Atlanta Public Safety Training Center and in opposition to any company associated with the project. Listen to the words written by a Defend the Atlanta Forest member, and I quote, the idea is, if you deal with the Atlanta Public, excuse, the Atlanta Police Foundation, you'll deal with us. For this one contract, people are coming to your house. For this one contract, people are visiting your church. For this one contract, people are flooding your phone lines People are sending you faxes. People are visiting your office. Some people are vandalizing your stores, are burning your equipment for the one contract, end quote. And this was chanted repeatedly during a public hearing at Atlanta City Hall just this past June. If you build it, we will burn it. If you build it, we will burn it. As alleged in the indictment, members of Defend the Atlanta Forest flatly reject the rule of law and do not recognize governmental authority. A sign reading, quote, you are now leaving the USA, end quote, was featured at the training site and also in social media and blog posts about the group. Similar to the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone, also known as the CHAZ, that was created and occupied by anarchists in 2020 in Seattle, Washington, we contend that members of Defend the Atlanta Forest unlawfully occupied the land in Atlanta where the training center is set to be built. 
They lived illegally in and around the trees on this property for nearly two years. In order to barricade the site, we assert that the defendants set sharp traps designed to injure anyone who might approach them, including law enforcement officers. As further alleged in the indictment, the defendants used incendiary devices, such as Molotov cocktails, large mortar-style fireworks, and were in the process of constructing a rudimentary explosive device. In one incident, we contend that members of Defend the Atlanta Forest trapped an unsuspecting civilian who'd approached the area and held him at gunpoint. As alleged in the indictment, the Defend the Atlanta Forest is financially supported by the Network for Strong Communities. While the Network for Strong Communities portrays itself as a legitimate, charitable, social justice organization, we contend that this group is operating several bank accounts, commingling funds from various causes, and raising money to establish and maintain the autonomous zone within the forest. As a result, thousands of good faith donors gave millions of their own money to a certain charitable cause, and their funds instead were spent on ammunition, surveillance materials, and a drone, among other out-of-scope items. Violence is not political speech, and I will never understand how we got to where we are today. It's important to remember these acts of violence are in response to the fact that the residents of Atlanta have rightly chosen to build a state-of-the-art public safety training center, a complex that will provide best-in-class training for first responders, firefighters, and law enforcement officers, the professionals who ensure our safety, who we call in times of crisis, who show up when our lives are truly at stake, and Georgians are at their most vulnerable. We need well-trained first responders. We need well-trained firefighters. And yes, we need well-trained police officers. Better training does not just help those who put on the uniform, but also leads to safer communities. Although this training center will be about more than training just law enforcement, let me say this about the importance of including police as well. Coming out of the social justice unrest during the summer of 2020, most people agreed that we want and need better trained police officers. In fact, there was almost a universal call for this. And here in Atlanta, we did what we always do. The public and private sectors came together to solve the problem. The business, local government, and law enforcement communities, as well as others, stepped up and said, we will build a state-of-the-art facility to ensure we have the best in our city, because we all deserve it. Regardless of your race, gender, sexual orientation, or where you are from, all Georgians deserve the best, and all Georgians deserve to be safe. The Atlanta Public Safety Training Center is an issue that has been debated, discussed, and voted upon over and over and over again. Let me be clear. As, to, as today's, excuse me, let me be clear. As today's announcement shows, looking the other way when violence occurs is not an option in Georgia. If you come to our state and shoot a police officer, hurl Molotov cocktails at law enforcement, set fire to police vehicles, damage construction equipment, 
vandalize private homes and businesses, and terrorize their occupants, you can and will be held accountable. The Georgia Constitution says it's the paramount duty of government to protect person and property, and that is exactly what we are doing here right now. We will not waver when it comes to protecting our fellow Georgians, enforcing the rule of law, and ensuring those who engage in violence are vigorously pursued and aggressively prosecuted. And I want to thank those that are up here today and many others. Thank you to Director Chris Hosey at the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, Chief Darren Shearbaum and the Atlanta Police Department, Colonel Chris Wright, Lieutenant Colonel Billy Hitchens and the Georgia Department of Public Safety, the Federal Bureau of Investigation and all of our law enforcement partners who over the past year have put their lives on the line to protect all of our fellow Georgians in the face of violence. And I also want to thank Governor Brian Kemp, Atlanta Mayor Andre Dickens, the Atlanta Police Foundation, and our private sector partners for their persistence and commitment in ensuring the successful development of the Public Safety Training Center. And with that, we'd be happy to take some questions. Okay, so we're going to take a quick break and come back and hear some of those questions. Uh, a few things that I wanted to point out. It's notable that the Attorney General listed the various city agencies that would be using the facility and cited law enforcement last. Three times that he did that. It feels like there's this forced effort to sort of suppress the idea that this is mostly about law enforcement training facility. Also, he said that this facility has been debated, discussed, and voted upon over and over and over again. By city council, yes, in the face of overwhelming opposition from those who show up to speak out against it, and never once by referendum, a referendum that public safety training facility proponents are trying to fight from City Hall. Back after this, the Ron Show on the America One Radio app, AmericaOneRadio.com, or wherever you podcast. Welcome back to the Ron Show for Tuesday. And covering the story that leaps right off the page today, the indictment of 61, air quotes, co-conspirators in the anti-cop city movement. RICO indictments. Chris Carr held a press conference earlier today. Uh, we heard in the first segment, and you can hear it again uh, later today at ronshowatl.com or uh, listen to the Ron Show wherever you podcast, and you can hear that in its entirety. Uh, Attorney General Chris Carr did take questions after his opening statement. Yeah, we'd we'll be happy to take some questions. AG Carr, Christopher King, Fox 5 News. Uh, opponents already are putting out a press release. They're saying that activists they're saying that, they, that these charges are anti-democratic and they're an attempt to intimidate What's your response? Our job is to enforce the laws of the state. And as you can tell in this indictment, this is about violent acts, plain and simple. The individuals who have been charged are charged with violent acts. We uh, feel very good about our case and we will continue to prosecute it to the best of our ability. Tony General Carl, why did you present this to the Fulton County Grand Jury, not the Cobb County where the train center is actually being built? And Something you noticed in the indictment is the names of the grand jurors were not there, like all the indictments. What is there a particular reason why you made I'm going to introduce John Fowler, who's the head of our prosecution division, to answer that question. Uh, good afternoon. Uh, so two, que- uh, two questions. The first was, uh, why Fulton County, not DeKalb County? Uh, Georgia racketeering law allows that. Um, and we avail ourselves of, of the Georgia racketeering law to do that. Um, anywhere that a predicate act um, or an overt act in furtherance of a conspiracy occurred, um, in any county where that occurred is where you can indict the case, and we chose to count uh, The second question, uh, we're going to decline to answer at this time. Um, uh, we're unable to answer that right now. 
So for the most part, we don't want to get too far into the facts. Um, we'll let that play out in the courtroom. But if, if you take a look at the indictment, it does tie it as an overact uh, in furtherance of the conspiracy. So at that point, we're just going to leave it at that. That's what the indictment alleges. Um, and um, we'll let the rest of it play out in the courtroom. Well, you know the significance of George Floyd's death was May 25th, 2020. Is that why that date was chosen? And, and how did this all start then? Again, there are certain things that, that we're going to let play out in the courtroom. We're going to let that play out in the courtroom. Um, and we'll be put up Not gonna lie, that is an interesting uh, date use there. They're not gonna tell us why. Dot dot dot. Yet, I also think something else that's pretty interesting about this: the same grand jury. I mean, this this is interesting bedfellows here. The same grand jury that indicted Donald Trump is the grand jury that hit the Stop Cop City activist with RICO charges. The same grand jury. So, this is this is neither a left nor a right thing. The, the the same folks on the left who are confident that <laughs> the grand jury did what they knew to do to indict Donald Trump is also perhaps somewhat uncomfortably now aware that that very same grand jury that they were applauding is now somehow in cahoots with law enforcement, maybe or the Atlanta Police Foundation. And then you have those on the right and the uh, public safety training facility proponents who may have questioned the validity of that grand jury that indicted Trump, uh, that indicted Donald Trump, who now are like, yeah, see, they, okay, so they do know what they're doing, but only in this case. I don't know. I, I just thought that was pretty interesting stuff. I think, I think that goes, if anything, for anyone who may have any thoughts whatsoever that our judicial system is somehow weakened by bias, et cetera, and so on, that when you seat a grand jury and task them to judge based on the facts put before them, that maybe without bias, they just do it. Hmm. The Cop City Vote folks released a statement via their social media that read, Today, Republican Attorney General Chris Carr, who used his platform to recruit for the January 6th insurrection, wow, right off the gate, announced blatantly authoritarian RICO charges against 61 people. These charges, like the previous repressive prosecutions by the state of Georgia, seek to intimidate protesters, legal observers, and bail funds alike, and send the chilling message that any dissent to Cop City will be punished with the full power and violence of the government. Further, the documents use the day George Floyd was murdered as the date the alleged criminal acts began. This is months before anyone was even aware of Cop City and is a clear assault on the broader movement for racial justice and equity. Carr's actions are a part of a retaliatory pattern of prosecutions against organizers nationwide that attack the right to protest and freedom of speech. The Cop City Vote Coalition strongly condemns these anti-democratic charges. We will not be intimidated by power-hungry strongmen, whether in City Hall or the Attorney General's office. Chris Carr may try to use his prosecutors and power to build his gubernatorial campaign wow, and silence free speech 
but his threats will not silence our commitment to standing up for our future, our community, and our city. I think I've said all along from covering this story, if you're guilty of destroying public or private property or threatening people or Molotov cocktail, that sort of stuff, I, 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 can't, I can't be sympathetic to your plight. I'm sympathetic to those who want to hold a referendum. I think I've even come down on the side of, yeah, I don't know that we need a facility that's $90 million, especially when Fulton County is going to build one for 17. And maybe the city and the county could collaborate on the same piece of property and stay, I don't know, within city limits. But I also think that there's going to be some trouble getting a jury to convict the three Atlanta Solidarity Fund folks for uh, money laundering when you're talking about items that were like $12.50 for reimbursing people for supplies like poster board and markers and things of that such. Just my two cents. Well, anyway, I'm sure we'll have more to cover on this as the story continues to develop. More Ron Show after this on the America One Radio app, AmericaOneRadio.com, or wherever you podcast. Get more at RonShowATL.com. Broadcasting five days a week to make common sense common again. This is The Ron Show on America One Radio. So maybe you don't listen to a lot of right-wing talk radio, and I can't blame you. It's been the same old song for more than 30 years, but God bless them for continuing to do it because they do have an impact on the way people think. I call it the rage machine. They love to feed the rage machine. Think of them like those fellas on the train who were constantly shoveling coal into the engine. That's what they're, they just continue to feed the rage machine and that rage train just keeps rolling on. One of the newer rages that they're feeding is the potential use of the 14th Amendment to keep Donald Trump from running for president again in 2024. And there is some discussion at the state level. Remember states' rights. We, we love... We love states' rights on the right, right? At the state level, there are some attorney generals who are openly wondering if Donald Trump is even eligible to run for president. So on MSNBC over the weekend, Ali Velshi hosts a show on Sundays called Velshi. That's his last name. And his guest was a former federal judge on the U.S. Court of Appeals by the name of Michael Luddick who spoke to the legality, the 14th Amendment, and who may actually have the ultimate say in whether or not Donald Trump is eligible to run for president. Here's what he had to say. This this case, if you will, is most appropriately uh, brought by a state uh, of the union, uh, after which uh, the... Uh, uh, the secretary of that st- secretary of state of that state uh, would have either disqualified the former president from uh, office or not disqualified the former president from office. After which, that decision would be uh, challenged in either state or federal court, but ideally state court, and make its way from there to the United States Supreme Court. Did you hear that? The United States Supreme Court with a 6-3 conservative majority. (laughs) Could you imagine just an even slim 5-4 decision in favor of keeping Donald Trump off the ballot at the Supreme Court that he and his party stacked in a 6-3 partisan manner? Yesterday on Twitter, Eric Erickson, the left really doesn't care about the destructive fallout of the 14th Amendment option. Um... When were amendments options, Eric? Can we 
present some options to the Second Amendment, sir? Back to Michael Luddig real quick. Uh, however, um, uh, Allie, uh, this is one of the most fundamental questions that could ever be decided under our Constitution, uh, and it will be decided by the Supreme Court of the United States uh, sooner rather than later, and most likely before the, the first primaries uh, uh, in which uh, Donald Trump would, ha- would be put on the, uh, the ballot or disqualified from the ballot by one of those secretaries of state. Again, let's consider for just a moment that a 5-4 majority court, Roberts, say what you will, we're not always going to agree with Chief Justice John Roberts, a Bush appointee, right? Not always going to agree with the Chief Justice. More often than not, we don't. But if there's one thing you can say about Chief Justice John Roberts, He is not beholden to the party that put him on that bench. And there are plenty of Republicans who would agree with me on that. Back in 2015, after the Obamacare decision, conservatives steamed at Chief Justice Roberts' betrayal. 2019, conservatives blast Roberts as turncoat. Let's actually go back to 2019. This article in Politico, Chief Justice John Roberts just keeps on breaking conservatives' hearts. On two consecutive days this week, Roberts sided with the court's liberal wing to deliver 5-4 rulings that deeply disappointed right-leaning lawyers and pundits who had been counting on near-certain victories from a court now stocked with a pair of Trump-appointed justices handpicked by conservative legal activists. And I know what you're saying. Okay, Ron, so that gets four votes, but you need five. I, I totally get that. But you have to remember, this very Supreme Court had the opportunity to hear a handful of cases that the Trump 2020 legal team took all the way to the Supreme Court, and that Supreme Court balked in unison. So it it may help to actually understand the history of the 14th Amendment and how it came about. It came about after the Civil War, as did the 13th Amendment, which of course emancipated slaves. But the 14th Amendment took that a little bit further, and is still, by the way, in use to demand of state and federal governments equality, recognition of equality, on the basis of race and sex and uh, national origin, sexual orientation even. And it also, in another section, deals with traitors, those who were formerly in the Confederacy, participants in a massive insurrection ever being allowed to run for office. So from a little video here, I'm going to share for you from the National Constitution Center. You're going to hear the voice of constitutional scholar and professor at Columbia University, Eric Foner here. The 14th Amendment, approved by Congress in 1866 and ratified by three quarters of the states in 1868, is the longest amendment ever added to the Constitution, and certainly one of the most important, probably the most significant since the original Bill of Rights. I think the best way to understand the 14th Amendment is to see it as the attempt by the victorious North, particularly the Republican Party, to put into the Constitution their understanding of the consequences of the Civil War, the meaning of the abolition of slavery, and the preservation of the Union. How do do those two great events 
play out in constitutional terms. And the 14th Amendment, which is five sections long, tries to deal with these consequences of the Civil War. Slavery, of course, had been abolished in the 13th Amendment, and the first section of the 14th Amendment, you might say, is trying to work out what it means, basically, to be a free person in the United States. And the first section of the 14th Amendment declares, first of all, that anybody born in the United States is a citizen of the United States. This made black people citizens. The Supreme Court of the United States in the Dred Scott decision before the Civil War had stated that citizenship was only for white Americans, that no black person could be a citizen of the country. Now a national standard of citizenship is established in the 14th Amendment. Birthright citizenship, we call it. Then it goes on to say, well, these citizens are all to enjoy the equal protection of the law and the privileges and immunities of citizenship. Now, these are, of course, vague phrases. The meaning of them is worked out over time in laws and Supreme Court decisions. But the basic principle is equality before the law, the, to try to separate being an American from the tyranny of race. Now the African-American former slaves are going to be integrated into the legal system as equal members of society with the same basic rights as white Americans. That's a new principle. It's put into the Constitution. It applies to everybody, not just black and white. It applies to Asian people. It applies to immigrants from Europe. It creates the first standard of citizenship uh, in the United States and makes the Constitution for the first time a document to which people can appeal if they feel their equal rights are not being respected by the state governments. It says the states can no longer discriminate among citizens in their rights. But then there's plenty of other sections in the 14th Amendment, many of them forgotten today, but quite important at the time. The second section tries to encourage the southern states to give black men the right to vote. It leaves the voting requirements in the hands of the states, but it says that if they don't give black men the right to vote, they will lose some of their representation in Congress. It has nothing to do with women's voting. If you deprive women of the right to vote, as every state did at that time, you don't lose anything. And many of the early feminists at that time were quite annoyed at the uh, Congress for introducing this gender distinction into the 14th Amendment. Then the amendment goes on in the third section to talk about who will hold office in the South, or that is to say, it bars from holding office leaders of the Confederacy. It's worded in a rather convoluted way, but basically they're trying to make sure that the governments that exist in the South, Andrew Johnson, the president who succeeded Lincoln, had created all white governments in the South, but many of the officials were ex-Confederates, and the Congress wanted to create loyal governments from their point of view who accepted the victory of the North in the Civil War and would implement the principle of equality that the amendment puts into the Constitution. And finally, there are other things which are sort of irrelevant today. It says there cannot be any monetary compensation for the loss of slaves. The Confederate debt is voided. Nobody is gonna get money back who loaned money to the Confederacy and bought bonds. But the national debt, the money borrowed to pursue the war, can never be questioned, it says. And then the fifth section says that Congress will have the power to enforce the amendment with appropriate legislation. In other words, it really alters the federal system. It gives Congress power over the states to oversee the states and make sure that they are abiding by these basic principles of equality and citizenship 
put into the 14th Amendment. So taken together, the amendment really changes the Constitution. It makes it something that protects the rights now of individual citizens, not only against violation by the federal government, which the Bill of Rights had done, but against violations by the state governments. And you know, the states before the war had all discriminated in some way or another on the basis of race. And of course, it was state law that had established slavery uh, in the first place. So the 14th Amendment makes the Constitution what it has become in our own time a vehicle for expanding equality and expanding the rights of all Americans and particularly groups, whether they are on the basis of race, gender, sexual orientation, who have been deprived of equality throughout much of our history. So that is, in a nutshell, the significance of the most important amendment ever added to our Constitution since the Bill of Rights. I mean, I like knowing a little bit about what I'm talking about before I talk about it. And I think it's pretty helpful in a discussion like this for us all to understand what the 14th Amendment is and why it may be useful and invoked in this particular circumstance. I'm going to also be a little petty and say, oh my gosh, this was driven by Republicans after the Civil War. You know, Republicans love to brag about how they are the party of Lincoln and how they are the party that emancipated slaves. So black people vote for us because uh, what our party did nearly 160 years ago. But also, this 14th Amendment thing, uh, uh, yeah, that's that's what you'll get from them. Well, your, your party was for the 14th Amendment. I, I, but that was 160 years ago. Yeah, exactly. Hmm. But this is also what weirds me out about pro-MAGA, pro-Trump Republicans who are howling with indignation at all the indictments and the opportunity for our judicial system to vet out whether or not Donald Trump is guilty of insurrection himself, inciting January 6th events at the U.S. Capitol or not. And whether or not, and is it not important that we determine if the potential of a president of the United States to be having once been spearheading an insurrection and to overturn election results? Shouldn't we know this? Shouldn't we, as we the people, shouldn't our judicial system, that third branch of government that is supposed to be independent of the other two, shouldn't it have an opportunity to hash out a really important question of constitutionality? To hear pundits on the right, even those who are not excited about a Trump 2024 presidential campaign, to hear them all, almost to a man and woman, universal in, uh, outside of what, Chris Christie? <laughs> Liz Cheney? Uh, there, there's so few Republicans who are not in lockstep with this near unanimous jeering of the indictments that have come out against Donald Trump. Oh, it's it's all politically motivated. It's a witch hunt. It's election interference. No, I, I actually think that these charges and getting our judiciary involved eliminates any concept of election interference and a speedy trial. The speedy trial is the most important part, if you ask me. And yet Donald Trump's camp, remember, they were trying for 2026. Um, what happens between now and 2026 that may undo, yes, exactly, a, another 
presidency with Donald Trump's tiny orange carrot fingers at the wheel. So the right can howl, and even pro-DeSantis Eric Erickson, I'll bring him up again, is being indignant here. Oh, the left uses the 14th Amendment. It's hypocrisy. No, this is actually the way our government was designed to operate and was tinkered with after the Civil War for a pretty important reason back then. And if January 6, 2021 isn't a valid reason to again invoke the 14th Amendment and put this in the hands of our judicial system all the way up to the Supreme Court that he stacked, then I can't think of an event that's happened since the Civil War that would actually come close. But oh man, let the Supreme Court actually thump him. Oh, that's going to be delicious. Cannot wait to see Keeping fingers crossed, right? More on show after this. The America One Radio app, americaoneradio.com, or wherever you podcast. Welcome back to the Ron Show, last segment of the day. Going back to our top story earlier in the show, 61 indictments handed down by Attorney General Chris Carr to stop Cop City activists, three of whom are Atlanta Solidarity Fund activists who were accused of money laundering, arrested by raid back in February. And uh, joining me from the Southern Center for Human Rights, Paige Dukes. Paige, how are you? I'm doing well, thank you. So talk to me a little bit about how your organization uh, has sort of stood up and decided we're, we're here to help make sure that these folks are represented in court. Well, the Southern Center for Human Rights um, is a nonprofit law firm working for dignity, equality, and justice for people and impacted by criminal legal systems in the Deep South. Mm. And so we have a long history of defending the right to protest and also with um, pairing protesters with attorneys when they are being criminalized for exercising that right. So this is nothing new for the Southern Center. Mm. However, um, in the past few years, in light of the um, increase in criminalization of the right to protest, we have definitely um, had to ramp up that project. And so we now have an official title for it, the First Amendment Lawyer Bridge. Um, and so we are reaching out to attorneys who are already representing the folks who are named in the indictment um, and also locating attorneys for those without counsel. And our current priority is to ensure those indicted are released on bond, um, especially because this indictment is in Fulton County. And as we all know, the um, Fulton County Jail has become just a horrific environment. There have been <laughs> nine deaths just this year alone. Yeah, right. Yeah, we've covered that. Uh, so is there any fear within your organization that you may find yourself somehow wrapped up in a future indictment the way the Atlanta Solidarity Fund was? Um, no, I don't think that that is a fear. I think that, you know, we as attorneys are often representing people who are being criminalized for the right to protest mm. and that, you know, if, if that were to happen, we would be geared up to represent, make sure that we had representation just as we do for anybody else. Yeah, I mean, it, I mean, I know it sounds like a silly thing to, to bring up, but I, I have to imagine folks that were fundraising for bond funds, like, like I said, at the Atlanta Solidarity Fund, they didn't think that they were going to be raided in an early morning raid at their, at their, at their property or their, or their home. Yes, sadly, I do think that they were expecting something like that to happen. I mean, it was out, was outlandish, but we have um, certainly seen the extent to which um, 
you know, state actors are willing to criminalize protesters, especially when it comes to cop city. Talk to me about other cases where this has come up in recent years that uh, we can sort of reference you guys from. Sure. So in 2018, um, there was a protest at the Georgia State Capitol um, during which there were people chanting, um, you know, count every vote. This was when Stacey Abrams and Governor Kemp were, um, you know, the the votes were being counted in the gubernatorial election. Mm -hmm. And um, Mary Hooks, who is a notable Atlanta activist, has been doing, um, you know, activism in Atlanta for many, many years, was one of the people who were arrested along with Congresswoman Nakima Williams. Mm -hmm. So those are two of our clients in that ongoing case on behalf of people who were criminalized simply for chanting at the state capitol, which is certainly um, a protected uh, form of speech and protected by the First Amendment. Is it, how do I phrase this question? I, I I just think it's it's sort of sad to see that there has to be in 2023, not 1963, a movement called the First Amendment Lawyer Bridge in the first place. This is evocative of the civil rights struggle and the need for attorneys brave enough back then to represent, you know, those who were out there marching for civil rights. Does does that does that does that strike you in any way? historically speaking, to be thinking from 60 years ago to now that we're still in a position where normal citizens who just want to enjoy their right to free speech and protest still have to rely on a First Amendment lawyer bridge? I think that there are a lot of things that we wish that we were not still having to fight for people's <laughs> rights um, in this day and age. Um, this is certainly one of them. We've seen bills introduced in state legislature in Georgia and in other states um, that would criminalize the right to protest. So I think that it is definitely um, unfortunate that we're still having to, to fight for the First Amendment rights of people to protest and air their grievances with the government. Um, but it is something that we'll continue to do as long as we have to. So the Southern Center for Human Rights, Ron, by the way, with spokesperson uh, Paige Dukes. Paige, how, if someone would like to volunteer their time or services or maybe even drop a dime to, to help you guys out, is that something you welcome? Sure. Yes. We're actually welcoming, especially if there are any Georgia attorneys who mm. would like to get involved in the First Amendment Lawyer Bridge, we are urgently seeking licensed Georgia attorneys available to represent community members and fulfill our mission to protect mm. the right to dissent. And so if you are an attorney who would like to participate, you can contact us at bridge at schr.org. Um, and we've also had folks reaching out to us today asking how they can donate money to the First Amendment Bridge, and you can do that on our website, schr.org, and then just you know note in the description box the First Amendment Lawyer Bridge. Okay, and just to be sure now, you, you guys aren't going to be rated if somebody sends you some money, right? I mean, I, I certainly hope not. We we That will be yet to be seen. Right. All right. Paige Dukes with the Southern Center for Human Rights. Thanks for calling me today and, and giving us an update on what you guys are doing to make sure that folks are represented in a court of law. You're very welcome. We will, by the way, put all those links, email address, and more in today's show notes at ronshowatl.com. Again, how about that for a fairly judicially heavy version of the Ron Show? I think I need to start considering going to law school or, or maybe this will all blow over and I don't have to know so much about the judicial system that'll do it for today back tomorrow 5 to 6 p.m. on the America One Radio app 
AmericaOneRadio.com or wherever you podcast. Show notes, we'll have all those links from today's conversations at RonShowATL.com. You guys have a great evening. See you tomorrow.